So I hope everybody has a Bible. We're going to turn to John chapter 8. And um, I just want to raise the question, can you trust this book? Can you trust this book? As we look at John chapter 8, if, if you are open to, to John chapter 8 right now, you see kind of a Surgeon General's warning at the beginning of the chapter. And you kind of go, well, what's that about? It says the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 to 8, 11. Oh, my. Can I trust this book? Uh, and so uh, I look at that word, and I am so very thankful for what lies behind it. Because what lies behind that that disclaimer is a lot of really good scholarship that actually gives me greater confidence that I can trust this book. And I've asked uh, Grant Eiley to come and talk to us a little bit about that very thing. Uh, Grant is a missionary that we support, and he works in the area of Bible translation. And I've asked him just to speak a word about these manuscripts that they're talking about and how that can increase our confidence in the Word of God that we hold in our hands. So, Grant, come on up. Good morning. <laughs> Thanks, Ken, for inviting me to do this. I work in Bible translation. I'm actually working on a translation right now, and we have to wrestle with these issues. Normally, it's just like a word or a phrase, and there could be, it could go two ways, and so we have to wrestle with these issues. And so the, um, Ken just asked me to address a few, a few questions, take a few minutes and address a few questions related to this. And so why is this section set apart in my Bible? The NIV has it in italics, and they explain a little bit. And then if you have the ESV, it has a heading similar to the NIV, um, and it has a footnote explaining that the earliest manuscripts of John don't have this story in there. It doesn't show up till about the fifth century, till about the 400s is when you start seeing this story included in the manuscripts. Well, what is a manuscript? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> a manuscript is all it really is, is it's a handwritten document. It's a, it's a handwritten document. And when we are talking about the biblical manuscripts, all we're saying, we're just referring to the handwritten copies of the original book of the Bible. Because Johannes Gutenberg, he invented the printing press, they think around 1436, give or take a few years. Um, 1436, so before the printing press, we didn't have like printed Bibles. So every edition of the Bible had to be hand copied. So that's, that's all a manuscript is. And how many do we have? When I'll just focus on the New Testament, because um, for time's sake, so we have around 5,800 New Testament manuscripts. So we have close to 6,000 New Testament manuscripts. And every year, a few, every decade, a few more are found. And so that having almost 6,000 New Testament manuscripts, that is way more. Like the Iliad, um, the Iliad and the Odyssey, they have just a small fraction of that. That's the second of all ancient documents, the second closest to the New Testament, 
isn't even close. It just has a small fraction. And that just shows that the early church, the early Christians, they valued the word of God so much that they made a lot of copies of it, and they took great care. So we have around 6,000 New Testament manuscripts, and we have about 200 in existence that date um, the first 400 years from that date before AD 400. And most of the New Testament documents weren't even written. They were written between like 50 and 100 AD. They're all of them were. And so we have from 100 AD to 400 AD, we have 200 manuscripts in existence, which is a lot compared to other ancient documents. That's a lot. And the earlier, the better. So we have like 200. And can we see a picture of a manuscript? So this is P66. It's Papyrus 66. And it was found in 1952 in Egypt. And it really amazed scholars because the first 26 pages were almost perfectly intact. And the binding still remained on it. So this is John chapter 1. It's the first 13 verses. And it's the first few words from the 14th verse. And you can, um, in day date, two, um, two guys who this is their expertise, one dates it between 100 and 150 A.D., and the other dates it at 200 A.D. And John, according to tradition, he wrote the Gospel of John when he was a very old man between the years 90 and 100 A.D., between 90 and 100 A.D., because he was younger than Jesus when Jesus called him. And so this was written not very long after the Gospel of John. So this, this copy is not very far removed from the original Gospel of John, which is amazing that we have that. And it has almost the entirety of the book of John in it. So how do we know which manuscripts are older? There's, there's six primary ways that we know which manuscripts are older and newer. One is the material that it's written on because over time people began using different materials. And so papyrus, that tells you that it was a certain time period. And letter formation, the color of the ink, the punctuation, and like the language that they used. And then we also have carbon-14 dating, and now we have AMS dating, which is a form of carbon-14 dating, but it doesn't destroy as much of the document. We don't use carbon-14 dating much because it destroys part of the document. And we have AMS dating. And then sometimes New Testament manuscripts would actually be found wrapped inside of other manuscripts that are dated. So that's how we know which ones are older and which ones are newer. But so then why would a, if the earlier manuscripts of John don't have this story, then how could this, how could it be inserted in the later manuscripts? Well, that's a good question, but there's, there's several different possibilities. One church tradition claims that they've had this all along, and so there's, we have 200, we have 200 manuscripts, and it's not the full Old Testament or the full Gospel of John, between 400 AD, so there's a pos so that means like a lot of them are lost to antiquity, so there's a small chance like that they're right that this did happen, but it's not very likely. Most likely the early ones didn't have it and then the second possibility is on, on um, the Sabbath, Christians, they formed what they created, what they call a lectionary. 
and where they would read portions of the Bible on different Sundays. And so they would mark off in the different Gospels the sections that they wanted to copy and have be read. So there's a possibility that a scribe marked around it and someone misinterpreted it to delete it. And so that it disappeared for a few hundred years. And then Christians who knew it was supposed to be there said, we got to put it back in. But most likely it wasn't. The third possibility is most likely it wasn't um, originally part of John's gospel, but it was a story that was well known in Christian circles, oral tradition, of something that Jesus really did. Um, if you read New Testament scholars and John scholars, I haven't read one scholar who doubts that this really happened. So it's the consensus among scholars now that this story really happened. This is a, that John 8, 1 through 11, what Pastor Ken is going to share today. This story really happened. So what they think most likely happened is a, is a scribe said we should add this because the church, the church and Christians believe this is a true story. And it fits well here. It's a true story of Jesus. Um, so we're going to put it here. And so the last question is, should this make me question my Bible? Should this make me question my Bible? And I don't think it should because um, if you've ever heard of the science of textual criticism, what textual criticism is, it sounds critical, but it's not. It's just they look at the text. And so what they do, it's a science now. They take all the ancient manuscripts and they put them in a computer and they compare them. So occasionally people would make a mistake when they were copying, but it's not very hard to find on a computer because if one scribe makes a mistake here and another one makes it here and you have, you have all the different manuscripts stacked on a computer, it can easily say, oh, 20 of them have, or however many they have of that book of the Bible, 20 of them have this reading and one doesn't. So it's, it's pretty easy. You can say, oh, yeah, the one, the one copyist made a mistake here. And so 97 to 99% of the New Testament, we know for sure is that we have exactly, exactly what the original um, writers of the New Testament wrote. It's beyond a shadow of a doubt. So there's somewhere like around 1% or a little more that we don't know for certain. And most all of those are just really simple little things. They're just like a word, like a conjunction, or just some simple word that bears no meaning on the text. And there's no disputed text in the whole New Testament that would add or take away anything from Christian theology. It's all small stuff. I'll give you, um, and then sometimes once in a while there'll be a word that would have a different meaning, but it's still related to it. So in 1 Thessalonians 2.17, Paul says, we became gentle among you. We became gentle among you. And that word is epioi in Greek, but some, some manuscripts say nepioi, which then it would become, be, we became like little children, or we became like infants among you. Because one, the, just the Greek letter nu, n, that's the difference between like little children and infants or gentle. But does it really change the meaning very much? No, it doesn't. And so we pretty much have, we know for certain that most of the New Testament, most of what we have, we know exactly how it read. And I have a friend, he runs the Center for New Testament Research, where he's, he was the first one to compile every manuscript, electrically transcribe it, 
every manuscript before 400 AD. And he does that even has the English reading underneath if you don't know Greek. And he says that he thinks God intentionally um, let us not know a few things because as humans, we are prone to idolize certain objects. And he thinks he wants us, that God intentionally let a few minor things come in that we're uncertain of so that we worship Jesus and not the Bible, which I think is a good point. But um, the point is, and I was talking to him, and he, he thinks this also is very interesting, is that he doesn't think John 8 is an issue, and I don't think John 8 is an issue, because the it, first Paul, Paul calls the church in 1 Timothy 3.15, he calls the church the pillar and foundation of truth. And so from the beginning, the church, they chose what books would be in the New Testament, Jesus never, as far as we know, he never left us a list, or Paul never left us a list. These are the inspired books that you should use for preaching and teaching correct doctrine and training. The church decided, indwelt and led by the Holy Spirit, they decided what books to have in. And so what most likely happened is the church, like someone added this because it was a well-known story, and the church over the centuries has found no reason to take it out. And when it was first put in, they said, well, this is a well-known story, and, and no denomination has ever taken this out. So I don't think we need to um, worry about it. And the final thing is we can really trust our English translations because they're very transparent. Anytime there's an issue, it shows it. It shows it in our good Bibles. And so it's like a refiner's fire. We take the Bible very serious um, as Christians, and so they will show it to you in the Bible. So you, you can trust your English translations. Most of it, it's without a doubt, and when it's not, they'll give you an explanation. We'll let Ken take over from here. Right at the end of John's Gospel, uh, at the end of chapter 20 and at the end of chapter 21, we find these verses where John writes, uh, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. I've, I've included these things. And he gets to the purpose of his gospel, that you may believe Jesus is the Christ. Again, more about who he is than what he's done. The Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. And then at the end of chapter 21, he says, Now there are also many other things Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so I'm going to just begin here this morning with the assumption that this passage in John chapter 8 is one of those many other signs, one of those many other things that Jesus did to point to who he is so that we might find life in him. So we're going to start by just looking at the passage, and the passage is on page 746 of the Bibles that we have, that we provide, um, and uh, we're going to just walk through the passage first. So let me read it for us all. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman 
was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. So it opens here in uh, the first verse with Jesus at the Mount of Olives. Uh, I was thinking uh, this morning I should have included a map. It would have been a great idea. But I mean, you, you kind of have Jerusalem here. And on uh, the east side of Jerusalem is the Temple Mount. And uh, across the Kidron Valley is the Mount of Olives. And just past that is the town of Bethany, where we saw in Passion Week that that was where Jesus stayed all of Passion Week uh, with his dear friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so that was kind of headquarters when he was in the area of Jerusalem. And uh, so it points to the Mount of Olives where this opens. And uh, it starts him in Jerusalem early in the morning because all he's got to do is cross the Kidron Valley and, and he's right there at the Temple Mount. And so we see him here teaching in the temple courts. This outer court of the temple was a place where teachers, rabbis would gather their students to teach them. And so for Jesus, this would not be an unusual thing. Uh, for the Pharisees to see him doing that would not be an unusual thing either. And it's interesting that we find him sitting to teach them. We stand to teach, generally, but we know that rabbis would sit to teach. And so in Luke chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 16, we see Jesus in Nazareth uh, teaching in the synagogue. Uh, he begins, they hand him the Isaiah scroll, which he asks for, and so they give it to him. He reads from the Isaiah scroll standing, and then it says, he sat down and said, today the scripture is fulfilled among you. Uh, so he was standing to read God's word. He sat down to teach that it was pointing to him. So he's sitting here in the temple, and it tells us also that all the people had gathered. Uh, just a kind of hint that his popularity is continuing to grow and that continues to irritate the religious leaders. And so in verse 3, we find suddenly there is this major disruption as a group of scribes and Pharisees, teachers of the law and Pharisees, bring in this woman who's caught in adultery and make her stand in front of all of them. Teachers of the law literally uh, is, is uh, the word for scribes, and what it refers to is legal professionals. Now, now we have a, a separation in our culture between um, the, the secular law and, and religious institutions. They didn't. 
It was all combined. And so these people were lawyers, jurists, um, judges uh, of, of their culture at that time. So these scribes were legal professionals. And so what that does is it sets up what follows as a legal proceeding. They have brought in this woman. They are now ready to have a legal proceeding and condemn her to death. And they tell Jesus that she was caught in the very act of adultery. Now, this whole thing could have been a fabrication of the Pharisees. They could have um, paid uh, a woman to come in and stand there and and do that. And what they wanted to do, the text tells us, was to trap Jesus. Um, I'm going to assume that this was not just a setup. I'm going to assume that they really did catch her and somebody else in the act of adultery uh, because what Jesus says to her at the end of the account is now go and leave your life of sin. And so this was evidently a guilty person. I think she knew it. I think she was ready to admit that. And Jesus forgives her and he asks her to leave this life of sin. So I think this is very real. And so evidently uh, the religious leaders had gotten a tip maybe from her husband, that she was being unfaithful. And so they staked out the home of her lover. Can you kind of picture that? Someone staying up to watch and see that she enters the home and stays the night there. And so he gathers his accomplices and they, they bust in on them and catch them in the act. And they are busted. Caught in the act of adultery, verse 4. But we notice that they only bring the woman in. What about the man? You know, adultery can't be done by one person alone. And so we we have to ask, so did the man escape? Was he more fleet of foot than she was? Um, Did he uh, resist and break free? It... it, uh, Or or did they let him go? It doesn't seem very fair any way you slice it, but it seems from the text that they're not interested in fairness. What they're interested in is trying to catch Jesus and, and trap him on the horns of a dilemma. Now, they... Um, cite the law of Moses here in verse 5, and they say the law of Moses requires that she be stoned. So what do you say? Well, when you look at the law of Moses, you find that they weren't dealing in the entire truth here. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, it requires that the man and the woman caught in the act of adultery both be put to death. And stoning wasn't specified there. Stoning in the verses that follow in Deuteronomy chapter 22 is only required uh, in the case of a virgin pledged to be married. So these religious leaders weren't being entirely truthful. Have you ever seen partial truth used as a weapon? It happens all the time. But now the trap is set and they're wanting to see what Jesus is going to say. What will he say? What do they want him to say? Why is this a trap? Well, they are putting Jesus in the position of either pardoning her or condemning her. 
if he pardons her, he is dissing the law of Moses. He's setting aside the law of Moses. So he looks to them, if he pardons her, he looks to them like the lawbreaker that they already think he is. But if he condemns her, he's siding with a practice that is very rare at this particular time. Uh, people were very rarely executed for adultery in the New Testament times. And so he is siding, if he condemns her, with something that's very unpopular. And it makes him look like anything but the compassionate and forgiving person that he has shown himself to be. And what's more, if he condemns her, that could put him squarely in the crosshairs of the Roman authorities who insisted that they were the only ones who could put someone to death at that time. So they're trying to get him in trouble either way he decides. They're trying to box him in. If he forgives her, he's disrespecting the law of Moses. If he condemns her, he's going to get in trouble in another way. And Jesus, verse 6, doesn't give them an answer to their question. Instead, he just kind of takes a knee and starts writing in the dust with his finger. What's that about? Well, it could be that he's writing in the dirt with his finger because he doesn't have a stick. It could also be that the author is being very specific here about Jesus' finger to get us thinking about something else that was written with the finger of God. Exodus chapter 31, verse 18. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. And so the law that the Pharisees are citing to try to trap Jesus is the law that Jesus was the author of. So what is he writing in the dust? Well, maybe it doesn't matter. It didn't seem to matter to the author. But a few possibilities do exist. Maybe he was writing the words of Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, that require both the man and the woman to be put to death. In other words, where's the man? How can you bring only her forward? Maybe what he was writing is some of the sins of the people who were trying to condemn her to show they were not sinless themselves. But Jesus writes in the dust, and because he doesn't answer, they press their question, verse 7. What do you say? What do you say? And so he straightens up and answers them in Verse 7 as well. Let the one among you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone. So who's going to be first? And the question had to catch them off guard. Had to make them ask themselves, am I guilty of sin? Am I qualified to throw the first stone? And the answer, of course, is no. I, I, I'm not qualified. 
And then Jesus bends back over, takes a knee again, and continues to write in the dirt. What's he writing now? Maybe names? Maybe names of other women who were known to be doing the same thing? Maybe women who were doing the same thing with some of them? And they start to leave, verse 9 tells us, one by one. Maybe one by one, they're seeing the names of women they recognize. They recognize too well. Or maybe they're seeing sins that they know they're guilty of. And why do the older ones leave first? I don't know, but I can tell you that I am less inclined to defend my own virtue and innocence as I approach 70 than I was 50 years ago. I'm a whole lot more ready to say I'm probably wrong. Uh, I'm a whole lot more likely to admit my fault. I'm a whole lot more likely to use those three little words my wife loves to hear. You're probably right. You discover the magic of those three little words. Use them. They're wonderful. But finally, by the time we get to the end of verse 9, everybody's gone. All of the accusers are gone. There was no one without sin, so no one could throw the first stone. And now there's nobody there but Jesus and the woman. And he asks, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And he says, then neither do I condemn you. And what she probably doesn't know at this point is that Jesus is the only one who could have condemned her because he was the only one without sin. But Jesus instead forgives her and he sets her free. And he can forgive her sin because he would bear her sin and yours and mine. His freeing her and his freeing us would be very costly to him. And he tells her, now go and leave your life of sin. Literally, now go and sin no more. It matters how we live. We need to live as people who've been forgiven and set free from the law of sin and death. We should desire to live a life without sin, not because we're trying to earn our way into God's favor, but because in Christ we're in it. We're no longer slaves to sin. It's no longer our master. Jesus has set us free from sin and become our master. We live lives to honor and glorify him. In the prologue of John's gospel, chapter 1, he tells us that Jesus was full of grace and truth. In uh, chapter 1, verse 14, and also in verse 17, John tells us that Jesus was full of grace and truth. It's a wonderful combination. Because truth without grace leads to legalism. And grace without truth leads to license. But put truth and grace together, and it's a wonderful thing. And Jesus was full of both truth and grace. The law alone, as the Pharisees were trying to enforce it, was incomplete until Jesus came. 
full of grace and truth. So that's a look at the passage. I want to consider just briefly the players. Think about the woman, first of all. How would you describe her? Four words occur to me as I think about this woman. Busted. Broken in on, right? I mean, she knew she was busted. Guilty. It was clear she was guilty. Condemned by the religious authorities. And the fourth word, forgiven. Forgiven. Because she was broken. How would you describe the accusers? I can think of four words there too. They were busted also. Jesus showed that they were guilty. They were guilty. They were condemned. But instead of being broken, they showed themselves unbreakable. Unbreakable. So the woman is forgiven, but her accusers are not. And the difference comes down to how they see Jesus. It's back to the central issue of John's gospel. Who is he? Who is he to the woman? She's everything to him. I'm sorry, he's everything to her. He is her only hope of salvation. She knows she doesn't have a leg to stand on. She's guilty, and yet he forgives her. Who's Jesus to the accusers? He's nothing to them. He is only an imposter. The passage, the players, what's the point? The point is, who is Jesus to you and to me? Have you come to the point of being broken by your sin, seeing that you have no reason for hope beyond this life? apart from Jesus? Or have you become unbreakable like this woman's accusers, unable to admit that you're fallen and flawed? There's a certain vulnerability in admitting our sin, but that's the price of opening our heart to God. Last week, I ended the message with a quote from C.S. Lewis, and I'm going to do it again. Um, I am capable of quoting other authors, but as I was preparing this message this week, something he said came to mind, and I, I found it in his book, The Four Loves. Here's what he says there. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Wrap it carefully round with the hobbies and luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. 
You see, it's only those who've been broken by their sin, who know they don't have a leg to stand on, who find forgiveness. It's those who refuse to be broken who will never find forgiveness. Will you insist that you are without sin, or will you entrust yourself to the one who is and who stands ready to forgive those who will see him as their only hope? Would you pray with me? Father, we see we have a choice between being broken by the sin we know that is there in our lives and being unbreakable, unbroken. Father, I just pray that you would help us to choose that path of vulnerability that opens our heart to you. It says, Lord Jesus, I recognize my sin and I, I thank you that you have borne my sin to the cross and I put my trust in you as my only hope. Apart from you, I know I don't have a leg to stand on, so I ask you to forgive me on the basis of your grace and mercy. Let me walk with you and bring glory to your name. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.